This is Pastor Scott Hidman from Clovis Hills Community Church, and you are listening to the Clovis Hills Podcast. You are about to hear from one of our teaching pastors here at Clovis Hills. I want to encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app where you can follow along with today's notes, submit a prayer request, or give to the ministry of this church. I hope today's message encourages you and draws you closer to the heart of God. Guys, I am super excited for you guys today. This is a great message. This is the, be the third time I've heard it. I'm telling you. So here's the deal. Um, I'm going to introduce a friend of mine who's going to speak today, and his name is Dr. Jeff Orge, and um, he is the president of Gateway Seminary, which I am, and myself and Pastor Steve, we are both alumni of Gateway Seminary. We went there when it was called Golden Gate Theological Seminary, and uh, we both got our, did our doctoral studies there. And um, I met Dr. Orge about 10 years ago when I entered into the program, and he taught one of my first classes, and I was just really impressed with him. And then um, I've read many of his books, and there's one called uh, about the church in Antioch. There's one, Seasons in a Leader's Life. Our E212 School of Ministry actually used, that's right, they used one of his books on Discover Your Calling. Um, just a wealth of information, a great teacher. But here's the thing I forgot to, like, re- I haven't given him a very good intro. Every service I've gotten a little better, but Saturday night I was like, welcome, Jeff, and I walked off stage. But listen, um, how many of you are San Francisco Giants fans here? A few of you. Okay, listen. So Dr. Orge, for many years, was the chaplain of the San Francisco Giants, and then this is how much he loves God. He, I mean, he left the Bay Area because of God's call, and he moved to Southern California, and he had to give up the chaplaincy, but he did get his three World Series rings. He has real World Series rings. I've held them. I'm a Padres fan. I'll never actually ever really touch a World Series ring in my life, but I can vicariously hold his. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. So let's give a warm Clovis Hills welcome for Dr. Jeff Orge. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Where in a moment I'd like to read a passage of scripture that's going to be the basis of today's message. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll be joining uh, in your series, uh, Good News for Bad Christians, that Pastor Sean's been teaching. Before I do that, though, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me, and I'd also like to say thank you for your longtime support of Golden Gate, now Gateway Seminary. Uh, We have received many students from your church. You have supported us in uh, quiet ways by hosting events on your campus when our church seminary has an event in this area. Uh, your pastor mentioned he and Pastor Steve both graduated from our school. Uh, you give to our school financially through something called the Cooperative Program, which is how Southern Baptists support uh, missions and education projects. So thank you for all you've done uh, for us. If you want to know anything more about the seminary, uh, come up and ask me after the service, and I'll be more than glad to answer questions or talk with you about that. Well, the words Christian celebrity don't really go together. In fact, it's an oxymoron, really. Christian celebrity. Yet many of of us fall into the trap of emulating this worldly pattern of elevating leaders to celebrity status even in the Christian community. Sadly, when we do that, it can lead to sectarianism or tribalism, It can produce denominational strife, and worse for you, it can even produce church conflict. Now, we've codified this problem in our culture today with the social media question, 
who do you follow? Elevating leaders to such a status that they become the person that we follow. Now you may think, well, now this is really a problem, but it's really only a recent problem driven by media and technology, but quite frankly, that's not the case. This issue I'm describing is actually addressed in the Bible, in the text I want to read this morning, as we learn what it means to follow leaders in inappropriate ways that does damage to us corporately and hinders our growth personally. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He said, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has a role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now this passage of Scripture begins by saying that some Christians behave in childish ways. Look back with me at verse 1. Paul writes this, Paul starts by writing this, for my part, brothers and sisters. Now that's important word. Those are important words. Paul is saying, I'm writing this to fellow Christians. I'm not writing to people who are outside the church who have this problem. I'm writing to people who are inside the church and have this problem. So this is a problem not for some of them out there. This is a problem for all of us in here. Are you with me this morning? Brothers and sisters, that's who he's talking to. He says, I'm writing to you, brothers and sisters, but I'm not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now, this contrast of spiritual people and fleshly people is Paul's way of saying this. I'm writing to you as Christians, brothers and sisters, but I can't really write to you as spiritual people or people who are acting like you're full of the Holy Spirit or have a spiritual drive in your life. I can't really write to you as those kind of people even though that's who you're supposed to be. Instead, I have to write to you because you're acting like people of the flesh or later on in verse 3, like mere humans or the end of verse 4, like mere humans. He's using this, these phrases to underscore that while he's writing to them as Christians and he'd like to address them as spiritual people, meaning they're people who are full of the Holy Spirit and living out a spirit-driven life, he says, I can't really do that because quite honestly... You're acting like fleshly people. You're acting like mere humans who don't have any spiritual capacity at all. Wow. That's hard language. And then he says, in fact, the, re the way that you're acting is like babies in Christ. Now, the word babies, here translated, is an interesting word because there's frankly several words in the New Testament language that mean baby, infant, 
toddler, or child. And we have those same words in our English language that mean different aspects of a child's life as they grow from infancy up through childhood. But this word in this text is not a word that's used to describe chronological age. It's actually used more to describe the behavior of a person than their age. And so I would think it could be better read this way. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as childish ones in Christ, people who are acting in a childish way. In other words, you should have grown up to this level of maturity by now, but you're still acting like children. You're like the 26-year-old in the basement playing video games when you ought to have a job. You're like the mid-20s young woman window shopping through the mall rather than productively using your time to make a difference. You understand what I'm saying? It's like you should have grown up enough to start acting differently, but you're still behaving like a child. So Paul says, I'm writing to you as childish ones. Now, you're thinking, this sermon is supposed to be good news for bad Christians. So far, it's just about bad Christians. Well, it starts out in the negative, so that's why I have to start this morning. But stay with me. We'll get there in a minute to some good news. But Paul's saying, look, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're supposed to be living spiritual lives, but you're not. And because of that, you're behaving in very childish ways, which then begs the question, what were they doing that earned this kind of description? Well, the answer is in the next verses. These immature, childish Christians were relating to their leaders in unhealthy ways. Notice what the next verse says. For since there is envy and strife among you, are envy leading to strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Paul said, you're childish when you relate to leaders in inappropriate ways, and you do that in two different ways. First, when you envy leaders and let that lead to strife. Now, what does this look like today? I thought back in my years of pastoral ministry for some examples. Here are things that people said to me or situations I had to deal with. Well, I don't understand why she gets to be on the worship team. I've been a Christian longer than she has. I've been a member of the church longer than she has, and my voice is definitely better than hers. Why does she get to be a leader in the church? Why does she get to stand on the platform? Why does she get the recognition and acknowledgement? Why don't I get that? Envy leading to strife. It just got a lot quieter in here. I'm talking to us, aren't I? That's where we live. Here's another one. A man came to me and said, why doesn't the youth pastor spend more time with my son? I see the youth pastor spending time with those children. I see the youth pastor with those teenagers. I see the youth pastor taking that group out for a Coke. I see the youth pastor going to visit their high school. Why doesn't the youth pastor spend more time with my child? I'm envious of the time that he spends with other children. He's not spending enough time with my child. I want to know why. Envy leading to strife. Here's another one. Why does her husband get to be elder? My husband's just as spiritually mature as he is. In fact, I know some things about them. If I told them, the whole church wouldn't probably pick him to be an elder. We should be getting this recognition. Not them. Envy leading to strife. 
Here's another one. You're thinking, man, that must have been some church you pastored. Well, it was an interesting place. One time it happened on Mother's Day. Now, we always recognize different mothers in different ways on Mother's Day, and sometimes this worked well, sometimes not so much. For example, one year we, recognized, we decided to recognize the oldest mother present, and so one of our senior adults, that came, women, came forward, and we were able to honor her. It was a beautiful moment. And then we asked for the youngest mother present, and, well, it was a 14- or 15-year-old girl that had come to the service the first time that day, had just recently had a baby, no husband. She comes walking down the aisle. It was a bit awkward, but we found a way to celebrate her life as well. Well, I thought, we won't do that again next Sunday, or next Mother's Day. We'll try something else. So the following year, I thought, you know, there's a woman in our church who's recognized as a leader in the foster care community. And she's fostered a number of children that have been a part of our church over the years. And people really respect her and look up to her and are grateful for what she's done. So on that Mother's Day Sunday, I brought her forward and we honored her for being a leader in the foster movement in our community and for her leadership in foster care in our church. And we gave her honor as a mother in the foster care way. I wasn't even out of the building before I was in trouble that Sunday, and my phone lit up that afternoon with women saying things like this to me. Why would you recognize a mother who only has a ministry because other women are being irresponsible with their children? Why wasn't I recognized? Why weren't other women recognized? Why weren't you, didn't you recognize those of us who fulfilled our responsibilities as mothers? That was a rough day to be pastor. You see, when we are envious of the woman who gets to stand on the platform, are envious of the youth pastor who doesn't spend enough time with our child, or we're envious of the person who gets selected to be elder or some other prominent leadership position and we didn't get that, or our spouse didn't get that, or when we are envious of a woman getting, or a person getting recognized by the church for an accomplishment because we think our accomplishment also deserved to be recognized, when that kind of envy erupts in a congregation, it produces strife. And Paul says... When you act like that, you are childish. And your childishness is holding you back from growing spiritually because of the way you're relating to the leaders that you're seeing recognized in front of you. And then he goes on. He says, not only that, but you're immature when you venerate leaders and that leads to factionalism. He said, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. And by doing this, you are creating factions in the church. Now, there's a fine line between respecting leaders and venerating leaders. But veneration is when you put a person up on a pedestal in such a way that their influence over you becomes negative in some capacity, and it begins to factionalize people around you into groups that cause division, either in your family or your church, your community, or in the larger kingdom of God. Say, what does this look like today? Well, let me give you three ways I see people choosing to follow someone in a way that produces division. First, there's what I call triangulating to find your security or to prove your validity. You say, well, I'm not this person and I'm not that person, so I'm somewhere in the middle. I must be okay. And we do this historically. We say, well, I'm not... I, 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 I'm not following John Calvin, and I'm not following a man named Arminius. I'm somewhere in the middle theologically, and you're thinking, I don't even know what that means. Good for you. It's probably an argument you don't want to get involved with. 
But others say things like, well, I follow John Piper, and someone say, no, I, I follow Andy Stanley, and there's, there's this about this person, and this about this person, and I, I like this thing, and I don't like this thing, and I don't like this thing, and I like this thing, so I'm somewhere in the middle. I must be okay. Are you tracking with me? You're triangulating off these people. You're, you're putting them out there and positing them against each other and creating division between them so you can find your security. Triangulating to find security. Here's another one. Categorizing to establish your identity. People do this to me all the time. They'll say, now, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I train pastors and missionaries. Oh, really? How do you do that? Well, I work at a seminary. What kind of seminary? Well, a Christian seminary. Well, what kind of Christian seminary? Well, a Baptist seminary. Well, what kind of Baptist seminary? Well, a Southern Baptist seminary. And that's okay so far, but the next question is the one that causes the, red alar uh, the, the alarm bells to go off in my mind, and that's when the person says, and what kind of Southern Baptist are you? They want to find out if I follow this person or that person or if I'm in this camp or if I'm in that camp or if I identify with this group or if I identify with that group. They're trying to pigeonhole me by hyphenating me to the point where they can decide if I'm acceptable or not in their little circle. Are you tracking with me this morning? You continue to hyphenate your friends and your associates and your fellow church members until you get them down to a point where they are just like you and that's the only people you want to have fellowship with. Sometimes it happens even in local areas. I asked for the names of some prominent pastors in your area. How about Pastor Brad, Pastor Dale, Pastor David, or how about Pastor Sean? You say, you know what, I follow one of these guys because they've got the truth. They've got what's right. They've got it going on. They're the one I want to be like. My friends, if you do that to the exclusion of the others, you are committing this thing I'm describing, and that is categorizing to establish your identity and validate your faith. Then there's one more posturing to promote your status, saying, well, you know, I, I know so-and-so, and I've been to their house. I'm kind of important because I'm connected. Well, spiritual name-dropping, you know what I mean? This happened to me recently. I, I got a, a, a text with a photograph, and it was a, a selfie. The person took a selfie, and they said, this is me in, and he told a very prominent Christian leader in his study. And I thought, why, why do I need to get that? Why do I need to know that this person is in this other person's private office? Why were they sending me this? Because they were trying to say to me, look at me. I'm important too. Look who I know. Look where I am. And it would be kind of sad, except I've done the same thing. You see, this is not a them out there problem, friends. This is a we in here problem. It was mentioned earlier that I, I worked with the Giants for 10 years. And it's amazing that sometimes I just like to mention that I know certain players and I'll just sort of drop their names. Why do I do that? Because in that moment, I want to let people know that I'm kind of connected to some people that they'd really like to be connected to, but they're really not, and I really am. You see, when we act this way toward leaders or prominent people or people of influence, when we act this way, Paul says we're being childish. We're acting like non-Christians act in terms of following people to an extreme. And he says it leads to spiritually stunted growth and to division among us. And as I've said, 
This is addressed to brothers and sisters. This is a problem that we have to focus on. It's a church problem that's real back then, and it's still real today. And so whether you're upset that someone got on the platform and you didn't, or someone spent time with the child and they didn't spend time with your child, or someone got picked elder and you didn't get picked to be elder, and are you're upset, are you're marginalizing by picking out a prominent person and triangulating off them to try to prove your validity, or you're categorizing people to try to say who you'll relate to and who you want and who you'll have fellowship with and who you won't, who you'll have to dinner with and who you want, who you'll be connected with and who you want, or you're just posturing by just occasionally dropping it that, you know, I've been over to Pastor Sean's house. Have you been over to Pastor Sean's house? <laughs> just posturing a little bit to prove who you know and who you're connected with and Show how important that makes you. If you're doing that, you're acting in a childish way, and it's time to grow up. So how do we do that? Well, how do you find some more positive relationship to leaders? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that the same person who wrote this warning passage to us also wrote a couple of other passages, one of them in the very same book, 1 Corinthians, in which he said this. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, follow my example. And he wrote the same thing to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17, where, it's, where he said, join in following my example. So what gives? Are we not supposed to follow leaders and pay attention to them and learn from them? Well, of course we are, but how do we do that in a healthier way by doing what Paul also wrote, and that is, following the example of leaders. I, I, I thought a good bit about this because it's what I do for a living all day long, every day. I, I lead a seminary, and our job is to be leaders, training leaders, and we want the people we train to appropriately esteem us, respect us, and learn from us, but we do not want to be sources of envy and strife, and we definitely don't want to be venerated and in some way become divisive. So one of the secrets to this business of learning to follow the example of leaders is actually revealed by something the Bible does very clearly that's not done so much today by media Christians and by celebrity Christians. Leaders in the Bible are described with both the good and the bad, their strengths and their weaknesses. For example, in the Old Testament, you'll remember this one, David was described as being a man after God's That's right. A man after God's heart. But he's also in the Bible described as a man who conspired to commit murder to cover his adultery. That's the full picture of that leader. What about in the New Testament? Peter was the apostle upon which Jesus built the church in terms of earthly leadership. He was the key guy. Except he's also the one who denied Jesus three times and used profanity to get it done. Are you tracking? You see, I could go all the way through and show you that in the Bible, the leaders are portrayed in the totality of who they are. You get to see their strengths and you get to see their weaknesses. You get to see what they do well and you get to see what they don't do so well. And the difference between following the example of a leader and venerating a celebrity Christian and thinking they have it all together and you're just going to devote yourself to them is the celebrity Christian almost always only presents to you the good side of who they are, where the Bible and the people you know like the pastors you really know that you can follow their example show you both the good and the ugly side of their lives and you can learn from all of it. 
That's what it means to follow someone's example. So, for example, if you were learning to follow, or if you were learning from me and you wanted to learn from my example, I have some strengths, but they bring with them some corresponding weaknesses. For example, I have the capacity uh, to think about the future and to make big decisions about organizational change to get us there. I have a 40-year track record of ministry leadership now, and for 40 years, that's been a hallmark of my life. I, I think more about 10 years from now than I do 10 weeks from now. I know more about where the seminary will be in a decade than I know where it'll be at the end of this semester. That's a good strength, except when it's not. And that is, I've never met a detail I couldn't ignore. Most meetings that last more than 15 minutes, I start drifting in my attention span. I don't know why we have to meet so long to talk about these things. Exactly. There you go, my brother. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you follow me around and learn from my example, you will see that I've had to learn how to manage my weaknesses, and I've had to learn how to work on those things, and I've had to learn how to become a better leader by paying attention to some details and participating in some long meetings and learning about the importance of dealing with the now, not just the tomorrow. And so if you learn from me, I want you to learn both. I want you to learn from my strengths, but I also want you to learn from how I've had to deal with my weaknesses. Same thing in communication. Standing up in front of you today is as easy as pouring the cornflakes for me. I spoke to a thousand people the first time when I was 12 years old. And I distinctly remember standing off stage, getting ready to walk onto the platform, and my teacher said to me, Jeff, are you nervous? And I remember thinking very distinctly, now why would I be nervous? What's about to go on here that would make me nervous? I later learned that most people do not like to speak in front of other people. <laughs> but I've been doing this since I was a little boy, and it's as natural to me as, as breathing. It's, it's easy. If you ask me to teach you how to do that, I would say, I don't even know. I, I've been doing this all my life. It's just natural. But put me in a committee with five people, and I have no clue how to facilitate or get that moving long to a suitable conclusion. I'm like, did she talk enough? Did he get to talk enough? Did I stop him from saying too much? Did I not bring enough out of her? Did I cover this matter? Did I cover that matter? Am I saying too much? Am I not saying enough? Am I making sure everybody gets checked in and everybody gets to feel good and everybody gets to be a part? And I am losing my mind in that meeting. And I walk out of a committee meeting like that, and I am just a noodle. Please, get me some tea. I need something now. Because that kind of interpersonal communication just leaves me drained. That's why I can stand up and preach to thousands and literally have spoken to thousands and thousands of people over these years. And I have a hard time staying in conversation with my wife and keeping it focused and getting the full meaning of what she's saying to me and understanding how to give it back to her. That's been a lifelong challenge for me. Do you have any idea what it's like to be able to speak to thousands and to write books that are read by tens or even hundreds of thousands of people and not be able to carry on a conversation with one person because honestly, you can't remember their name and they just told it to you three minutes ago? <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that following my example is not about following the persona I project on social media Following the example of your leaders is knowing their lives well enough that you observe the good and the bad, the strengths and the weaknesses, and the growth that's taking place in their lives, and you follow that example, not the example of their, of their perfect image they projected. Now, does that make sense to you? 
That's why your leaders that stand before you here Sunday by Sunday will always be more important to you than some projected leader from a great distance because that person standing in front of you in your class, in your church, in your ministry, that person is a person you can really know and you can really learn to follow. Follow my example, Paul wrote. And that means learning about a leader and learning about the totality of who they are and then following them forward. Now then, is there a better, more mature perspective we can have on leaders that will help us do this? Well, there certainly is, and now we go back into our text. Maturing Christians relate to leaders in healthy ways, and we see that starting in verse 5. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? In other words, who are these leaders and why do they matter? And then he answers his own question in the next phrase with three aspects of, who they are, of, uh, uh, three aspects of the answer. He says they are servants through whom you believed and each has the role the Lord has given. How do you have a healthier perspective on leaders? Well, it, it starts here by recognizing that leaders are servants who channel the gospel or the message of God. It says here, through whom you believed. They were the channel through whom you believed. And they are fulfilling the role the Lord has given them. So when you view a leader, rather than view them as a celebrity, (coughs) pardon me, or a superstar, View them as a servant. Rather than viewing a leader as having the truth, the answer, the perspective, the way, view that leader as a channel for what? The gospel. Not their own ideas, not their own message, but the gospel. And then, rather than looking at a leader and saying, man, look at the position they've achieved. Instead, look at them and say, that's a person who's fulfilling the role the Lord has assigned. So when you view a leader, you do not view them and say, wow, celebrity, wow, superstar, wow, super achiever, wow, person who speaks truth. Wow, person who has the final message. Wow, person who has all the insight. If I just do what they say, I'll be all right. Instead, you view a leader and you say, this leader is a servant who serves God and serves me by doing what? Being a channel, not of his or her own ideas, but a channel instead of God's gospel, the message of God, the word of God, and then Because of that, I look at them not as a person who's achieved or who's been put in their place by their own achievements, but instead a person who's fulfilling the role God has assigned. Isn't that a much healthier perspective on leadership? Rather than viewing someone as a superstar or a superachiever or an oracle or a final arbiter or someone who has the truth, instead we view someone as a servant who speaks the gospel because that's the role God has placed them in and he's the originator of their role and responsibility. And then even beyond that, we recognize that God always has the priority in any ministry success, and he's always the one who causes any real spiritual achievement 
Notice what it says in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And continuing this metaphor of planting and watering, verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but what does it say? But only God gives the growth. So we see it at the end of verse 6, but God gave the growth. We see it at the end of verse 7, but only God gives the growth. And if that's not enough emphasis, drop down to verse 9. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now, those of us who take a high view of Scripture believe that not only is the, quote, is the Scripture in the general terms inspired, but we believe the, the words are inspired. In other words, the words that are there are actually chosen specifically. And so that's why, and, and that's important in understanding this verse. Look at it again, the last part, verse 9. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. If you were writing that in a typically grammatically correct English sentence, you'd probably write it this way. For we are God's co-workers, field, and building. Do you see the difference? For we are God's co-workers, field, and building. But that's not what was written. When Paul wrote this, he said, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you hear the emphasis? Three separate times in just five or six words, God, God, God. So when you back up to verse 6, the end, but God gave the growth. Verse 7, the end, but only God gives the growth. Verse 9, three times, God's co-workers, God's field, God's building. Are you getting the emphasis that is being made in this text? While leaders serve by giving you the gospel and fulfilling the role God has assigned, any supernatural spiritual result that comes is not a sum total of their effort or expertise. It is God who is at work in the moment. It is God who is at work in the moment. And whether you go by the analogy of the planting and watering or the analogy of the co-worker or the analogy of the field, these are just different illustrations that Paul is using to help us get different pictures of this, of, of this principle. It is still coming back to this great reality. God gives the increase. God accomplishes the results. God and only God can do what is supernatural and spiritual in ministry, in ministry results. You do get this. You see it modeled here in your worship service almost every Sunday. Pastor Sean or some other speaker comes to the platform. They serve you by preparing all week, coming to deliver the message to you, the message that will be the means by which you can believe. They're fulfilling the role that God and you as the people of God have assigned them to be the pastor or the speaker for the moment. And then at the end, at the end, the open invitation is given that if you'd like to have your life changed, you can turn to God and ask him. He'll come into your life and change you forever. And then people start coming. In that moment, is there any one of you that says, look at that Pastor Sean go. He's changing everybody. No. There's not a one of you that would say that. Instead, what would you say? Look at God move as he changes the lives of people. You see, that's what I'm talking about. 
We don't devalue the one who's, who's served by delivering the message and, and by fulfilling the role. We don't devalue that. We respect the person who does that. We thank them for doing it. We offer gratitude for their service and their effort. In fact, the Bible even says we can honor people who do this kind of work for us. But in the context of all of that, while we express thanks and give gratitude and we give even honor, we do not venerate by saying, and they are the cause of what's happening here. We always come back to say, it is God who gets the credit because God and only God can accomplish supernatural, spiritual change in the lives of people. So here's the message in a nutshell. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish. Don't demonstrate childish, immature Christianity by inappropriately following anyone. Don't be envious of people who get placed in leadership and because of your envy, create strife in your family or your church or even in the larger Christian community. Don't do that. And don't factionalize by becoming followers of some particular person to to the extent that you venerate them and believe that they've got the answers. We just all need to get in line behind that person. Don't do that. Paul said grow up. Grow up by relating to leaders in an appropriate way, recognizing that your leaders are servants who deliver the gospel and the message of God to you, and they're only doing that because that's the role they've been given. And whatever results are achieved, we give glory to God, who actually accomplishes spiritual work. Now let me end with a compliment and a challenge. I want to give you a compliment and say that your church, in a very big way, has been a model of doing this passage of Scripture positively for a lot of other churches. You had the opportunity in the last few years to say, I belong to Pastor Steve. I belong to Pastor Sean. And if you had done that, You would have created disruption and damage, but you didn't. You said instead of those claims, as a church, we belong to God. And while we value Pastor Steve as our servant who delivered God's message in the role that God had assigned him, now we value Pastor Sean who stepped into that role as a servant who delivers God's message and, in, and has the role God has assigned. But we recognize that while God has given us leaders, it is God's church, it's God's field, it's God's building, and we are going to magnify and honor God and come together in unity around that. I give you a strong compliment for being that kind of church. And in fact, one of the frequent phone calls I receive as a seminary president is to help churches through transition, and I refer them to your church as a model for how to do that. But now I end with a warning and a challenge. Just because you got it right in a big way doesn't mean that the kind of illustrations and examples I've given this morning can't become a part of your church in a negative way. Be on guard. 
and every one of you individually resist the temptation to inappropriately relate to leaders and by doing so create envy that leads to strife or veneration that leads to factions. Decide this morning that you're going to follow leaders appropriately by following their example, not blindly giving allegiance to them in a way that stunts your growth and hurts your church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, around the room now, people are thinking about what to do about this message. And so I pray that you would move in their hearts right now and help them to pray something like this. Father, I want to respect my leaders and follow their example. But help me not to do that in a childish way. Help me, Father. Help me to avoid envy and the strife that comes with it. Help me to avoid putting any leader, whether it's a person I know or some media Christian I've only heard about through the social media and other channels. Keep me from putting anyone like that up on a pedestal that causes me to venerate them and that leads to division. You pray as you're impressed right now in response to this message that God would give you the best and right kind of relationship to leaders that produces unity and strength. Now, Father, thank you for this message. It's an interesting text in that it warns us about something that's a common problem today. And I thank you for this church and how they have been a model of not doing the negatives in this text, at least in the big ways. But I also know how evil the devil is and how insidious sin can be. And so I pray in the small ways, in the small ways this message reveals, you would protect this church from those bad choices and those divisions give unity when it comes to following leaders in the right way. Thank you so much for hearing our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Hey, I encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app on your phone. With the app, you can do all kinds of things like prayer requests, live notes, giving. I also encourage you to check out our uh, Facebook Live page if if you want to watch online. You can come to our services live. They're Saturday nights at 6 o'clock, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.